0: It's the 4th of September, 2016, and this is episode 307. On today's show, part two of our conversation about Bitcoin vaults with Goon from hackingdistributed.org. If you missed episode 306, then you should probably stop this now, go back and listen, as this is part two and you might get lost otherwise. For those of you who tuned in last week, enjoy the show. So just on the topic of uh, kind of multisig and Bitfinex, one of the things that really jumped out at me about that is that not all multisig schemes are created equal. And people kind of talk about it like multisig equals security. But in this case, it was actually being used as a risk mitigation tactic, as far as I know, rather than as a, a real security feature. If you look at the terms of service, effectively what BitGo was providing, they were acting as a way to stop Bitfinex. From being able to take actions with funds that were associated with your account, if you gave Bitfinex, or sorry, if you gave BitGo the explicit instruction that they should stop co signing. So that's the way that that relationship worked. It wasn't so much that uh, they were a security mechanism, quite so much as it was a way for uh, for Bitfinex to say these funds aren't really under our control because if the user wants us to stop acting automatically on their behalf, they have a venue to do that that doesn't involve going through us. So we're not the we're, we're not the custodian because of that. So that's very different, I think, than most of the other multisig schemes out there that people might think of.
1: So you're absolutely right. So um, not all multisig is created equal. And indeed, in this particular case, it was used uh, to, to establish a certain custodial relationship uh, or to actually unestablish a certain custodial relationship. It was used, just like you said, by Bitfinex to be able to say, we do not control your coins entirely at our leisure. In fact, you have control over them. And uh, that was part of what they, they strived towards when they created this whole setup. But it did also mean, under ordinary circumstances, they could control your money. And in fact, the hacker broke into their systems, it sounds like, from uh, the accounts that have been made public so far, and, um, and managed to, uh, to control a fair number of wallets. So uh, absolutely, not all multisig is created equal.
0: Right. So to a large degree, this is really, I mean, like, you know, uh, this is a vault certainly could help here, but it seems like this particular incidence, like if they had had a real multisig, you know, solution in kind of the way that I think people thought of it, then this pretty much wouldn't have been the problem that it was, right?
1: That's true. On the other hand, that kind of a multisig setup is incredibly cumbersome. It's super inconvenient from the point of view of users. And then if you are the exchange and the user calls you up and says, hey, I lost my, my key, my machine got wiped, etc. Um, how do I get it back? Uh, well, is your story going to be mm, sorry you lost the the money forever, or is your story going to be okay? Well, we can we can help you. So um, it sounds like many exchanges in this situation, Bitfinex certainly one of them, uh, decided to say, well, okay, we still can control your money when uh, you know without needing your key, and uh, that immediately opens them up to these kinds of attacks. So um, it's I, I really don't know that multisig. Is going to like proper multisig is going to be um, is going to be practical for masses. Um, there are times when I need multisig, but every single time I need multisig in my regular life, it's a hassle, and I try to avoid it. So it try to just turn every single um, transaction into a multi-sig transaction just for security purposes. I think that's a non-starter. I don't think that, that your regular, you know, mom and pop operation, uh, you know, or day trader or whoever, even the day traders, who are actually, they're actually pretty uh, hip with technology. I don't think they're, they're going to want to go through the hassle of a multi-sig transaction every time they want to trade. It's just too much hassle people trade convenience with some risk, and then the exchanges scale that risk up to uh, to these enormous proportions.
0: Well, so then let me challenge you on the distributed exchange um, side of it, because that's, again, that's like another one of those topics that we've been talking about here since, you know, since before Mt. Gox went under. And there are a number of distributed exchanges out there, uh, whether you're talking about like the BitShares distributed exchange that actually has its own blockchain or something more like BitSquare, which is just kind of like a dot connector for, uh, you know, but not uh, specific to a particular chain, they are inconvenient. <laughs> they have fees for every action you take, whether or not it's a cancellation or anything else in general, because uh, if it's on blockchain, then of course you have that paradigm. Off blockchain, you have kind of a different set of trade-offs. But no matter what, it's nowhere near as convenient as these centralized things are. So do you, I mean, do you really think that we'll get to a point with distributed exchanges where they are as convenient as centralized exchanges?
1: You're absolutely right, right? so. The the whole community throws around the decentralization word as if it's some panacea, and, you know, it'll cure all ills. Um, typically, it's much harder to build a decentralized version of something that is currently centralized. And typically, it's much, 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 much more difficult, the same kinds of properties in a decentralized network as you have in a centralized system. I mean, look at the complexity in Bitcoin and look at the complexity of your regular bank, right? So, uh, you know, it took a Satoshi-level kind of contribution to get to Bitcoin. Whereas a bank, you know, anybody can sort of start implementing something simple that keeps track of accounts. So um, that jump is really hard. So you are picking on the convenience factor. You're absolutely right. There are are really hard computer science problems with something that is I would consider much more fundamental, which is privacy. So in a decentralized exchange, a lot of parties have access to the internal state of the exchange and they can start to game the system. And there are attacks available on a decentralized exchange that are not necessarily available in a well-implemented centralized exchange. So uh, to build this correctly is actually quite difficult. So I've been thinking about how one would build a decentralized ex- exchange that is secure against attack, against that, that keeps the internal books private and doesn't allow, uh, allow bad parties to game the system. And, uh, so, and that's where I kind of stopped because that's actually a very hard problem. And so, so the next level up from this is uh, usability, and, uh, you know, we're going to have to work on it. In my career in computer science, um, many times there were people who said something is impossible, uh, or something seems really hard. and um, But if they said this, and there wasn't an impossibility proof, that is, Anytime you see you hear people saying, oh, this is going to be blah, 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 Um, you know, if there isn't an impossibility proof, then somebody bright enough will come in and make it, make it work really well. I, I was lucky enough multiple times in my career to come in and say, hey, you know, everybody thought this was impossible. Here is a trick that allows it to happen. So usability is the same way. I, I don't see any reason why you cannot hide the complexity of, um, of a decentralized exchange behind a you know, simple looking u- user interface. I don't, ne- I don't necessarily see, at the, you know, as I said, it's difficult, but it's not impossible to make a, a, an unhackable decentralized exchange. So until somebody comes up with an impossibility proof, um, I think we should be hopeful. There's a lot of room for optimism. Every time there isn't a proof of impossibility, uh, somebody will come in and, and typically find a good way out.
0: Okay, so I have one more question for you. Um, Getting back to the vaults topic, this is a little bit more kind of, uh, you know, um, how this system would actually work. Okay, so to to recap, right, so I have um, my, you know, funds, I have my savings account in a vault that has a 24 hour timer on it. Um, I pull funds out of my account into another address I control because I couldn't use it to pay someone else because they would see that it's a vault, know that it's reversible and not be willing to accept it. But what I don't understand is, um, does this increase the burden for users effectively, users, merchants, whatever you want to call them, um, because they then have to track back multiple steps like can I, for example, withdraw to a vault and then before the 24 hours is up, uh, spend from this other address to someplace else, right? And then maybe it gets reversed, but maybe I've already spent it by the time it gets reversed.
1: No, the latter should not be possible. So if you put your money in a the vault, there is a particular timeout and the money isn't out until the end of that period. So you cannot spend it and you cannot fool somebody about uh, you know, sending them a, a reversible transaction.
0: Once I've taken it out of the vault, It has to sit there for the full 24 hours before I am able to spend it to somewhere
2: else. Is that correct?
1: Sure. If you put a 24-hour look, yeah, that's exactly what you have to do.
2: From reading your paper, Gun, I was looking through that, and in order to implement Vault, the the one primitive you need to add is a script operand called check output verify. It would be a, a new part of the scripting language. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that um, with the introduction of SegWit, you could do that as a soft fork upgrade to the Witness script version relatively easily and relatively quickly, uh, because now se- segregated Witness has opened the door to doing script, uh, script upgrades with soft forks. Is that true?
1: That, so, let's see. I haven't really thought about the interaction of SegWit and um, Covenants and Vaults. Now that I think about it, you are probably right that this could be done in a soft fork. I just haven't thought it through, though, and I don't want to, to speak too freely and end up saying something incorrect. When we were doing this, SegWit was, uh, was also being worked on concurrently, uh, or in fact, we might have started before SegWit, and uh, we published our paper a while ago. So, uh, so we haven't really thought about the marriage of the two. So we're currently moving our implementation on top of SegWit just started recently, just maybe two days ago. So we haven't really thought the issues through at all. And uh, it would be uh, wonderful if we could just do this with a soft fork. The other thing though that's related on this topic that I can speak to is that uh, check output verify, uh, that new opcode that we do need. It's actually an incredibly useful primitive. It, It could be used to implement all sorts of other things, covenants on transactions are a universally useful you know new feature they allow you to say something like normally when i give you money you just redeem it and you do it you do whatever you want with it Uh, when i attach a covenant what it does is it restricts the kind of transaction that follows the one that i paid you with so if i give you 10 bitcoin and it has a covenant on it that covenant restricts your redeem script so, suddenly, you are not allowed to do willy-nilly things with that money. You're restricted. And this is the basis of the vault idea. Um, when you put it into the vault, you restrict how it's taken out. And so, and then you can actually you can do all sorts of cool things. The moment you take the money out, the covenant is lifted. The money becomes free again. It's, it's great. Um, but you can create things where, for example, the money, the covenant carries through with the cash for all time. You can do you know, anyway, you can do all sorts of things that are sort of technically cool, and uh, they require just a little too much setup at the moment for me to go into in full detail. But interested uh, readers can find the details in the Bitcoin Covenant paper. It appeared at the uh, Bitcoin Workshop back in uh, February 2016. And, and um, it's, uh, I think it's a very cool uh, underlying feature and uh, I'm sure there are many other uses for covenants that we haven't thought of yet besides vaults. Um, we've also thought about colored coin implementations, for example. So, one big problem with colored coins is, um, so here's, here's the idea with colored coins. Um, I would like to have a satoshi represent ownership in the real world. I would like to have one satoshi represent ownership of, let's say, a bar of gold. This is something I could do today, right? I would have to set up some infrastructure I would have to have somebody vet the fact that there is a bar of gold in some, in some, vault, some physical vault someplace. And uh, once I get that certificate, maybe I attach that on the blockchain and I say, this designated Satoshi here, it represents ownership of this bar of gold. Um, or you could say, you know, this particular Satoshi represents ownership of my car. The private key gives you the ability to get the car started or whatever else. The Internet of Things also opens up a huge set of application scenarios here. So this is all fine and good, and we could do it today. And there are in fact many, 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 many startups that are actually looking into doing colored corn ideas. I, there was a time, maybe about a year and a half ago, I was getting one call per week saying, hey, professor, I have a great idea. Please don't tell anyone. And I'd be like, okay, is your idea to implement uh, gold on the blockchain? And they'd be like, how did you guess? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, there were like seven other people who called right before you." So, people want to do this. It's a useful thing. But with the current Bitcoin infrastructure, the fact that that Satoshi is special, the fact that that Satoshi represents something other than a regular Satoshi, is lost, right? It's all too easy to, you know, if you screw things up, you could easily take that Satoshi, mix it in with your coffee purchase or whatever it is that you're doing with Bitcoins, and you spend your house or you spend your gold bar on a cup of coffee because it to you, to, to, uh, to regular Bitcoin uh, client software, it looks like a regular Satoshi. They don't know the fact that this is special.
2: In fact, because of the tiny size of this, it's extremely likely it will be used as the perfect size UTXO to pay the fee.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you say so exactly, well, Satoshi might be too small for dust, maybe. But uh, but indeed, right. So you'll have smaller quantities lying around, and uh, you know you you hook in from your new phone, and suddenly you've spent your house on something dumb. And, um, and we don't want to have that happen. So what you can do with a covenant is you simply say, look, this, this particular Satoshi can only be redeemed in transactions that have some special marking that indicate that the, the client they came from understands how to parse them, right? It's a, it's a special client. Or you can say this can only be mixed with other, uh, other specially marked Satoshis that carry the same label, right? So, for example, this is in the vault in Switzerland, in Zurich, you know, bank number 37. And uh, if you've got other, Satosh- other specially marked Satoshis from the same bank, same vault, you can mix them. Anywhere else, you shouldn't mix them. So this is something that we can implement with the covenant idea. I think it's pretty exciting. I've, I've been super excited by it. I was a little dismayed back when, um, you know, in February the paper came out. I'm, my team was very excited. It was just crickets out there. Everybody was talking about nothing but scale and scaling and block size, this and small size, big size, and everybody wanted to find out. Before they would even talk to you, they had to pigeonhole you into a big, big blocker versus small blocker. And it was really frustrating because. You know, Bitcoin, as cool as it is, it's got more than one problem. In fact, any real system, it's got more than one issue to, to make better. So scaling is not the only issue. Security was the other one. And, um, and we had this cool primitive in, on our hands that I, I thought, hey, this should get some attention. Um, and it took, took some time. But, uh, but I think people are now beginning to see why this is actually such a powerful primitive. And, and I hope that it's going to find its way eventually into some distribution or another.
2: I, I'm really excited about this. I actually hadn't seen it myself, Glenn, but uh, I can immediately see enormous possibilities for a primitive light covenant, especially when you mix it with uh, with time locks, conditional multisig, and hash lock time contracts, which is the other um, kind of invention that came along with uh, duplex payment channels. All of these things are not just powerful on their own, but in combination can create some very capable smart contracts, which I think is the other Thing that People assume that because Bitcoin isn't the uh, true and complete flexible th- system that Ethereum is, that you can't do smart contracts. And we've seen the Lightning Network is just one example of the fact that you can do some really sophisticated things with a few simple primitives adding something like Covenants can really in- empower that even further.
1: Absolutely. In fact, I'd add uh, confidential transactions to the list that you just mentioned. And uh, you combine these mm-hmm. things, you've got a very powerful thing. You know, I can show you the fact that I can give you a gold bar without revealing to anybody that I just gave you a gold bar. It looks like a tiny Satoshi-sized transaction or whatever else it looks like. Um, so it's, uh, it's pretty pretty darn cool. Yeah, no, this is, uh, it's pretty fascinating stuff. Um, I, in combination, these, these uh, uh, technologies are actually incredibly powerful. And as you mentioned, actually, I should also mention this, that smart contracts, you could build them in many different ways. Uh, we've also, we've already seen people build uh, Turing complete smart contracts on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. It's not very hard. So yeah, no, the, nobody, nobody has, a, has a, a monopoly on this. Um, What we do need for anything to happen is sort of some sense of community unity and some sort of push for these new powerful features that work so well together.
2: Well, uh, speaking of uh, implementation and push and getting things uh, into implementation, if this can be implemented through the segregated witness script version upgrade, that's one way to get it in. An alternative would be very similar to how Uh, Check lock time verify and check sequence verify were implemented with a vote uh, soft fork by replacing an existing uh, inoperative uh, op code like op-nop, one of the uh, unused codes that are left in the scripting language. There are some still left. So this could be implemented uh, with a simple soft fork vote. Who's writing the BIP? And when are they writing the BIP?
1: That's a good question. Um, oh, let, Before I answer that question, let me also mention something. A lot of people think that the uh, the opcodes are a precious resource, which they kind of are, but uh, but it's not the case that we have only like, you know, we, we had six or something last time I checked. So we're probably down to a slightly less than that by now. Maybe we're down to four or something. But um, you can easily have certain combinations of opcodes mean something. So it's pretty easy to to actually... Uh, expand that space and say something like if you see opcode you know no op 1, no op 3 no op you know 4 etc in this particular sequence it really means this other opcode so you don't you're not restricted only to single byte opcodes there so that space that's not a precious resource Um, so it's possible to do this Let's see, who's writing the BIP, who's writing the code, who's pulling the sled? Um, At the moment, my group is looking into um, porting our code from uh, where it used to be. It used to be on 0.11 to 0.13. So that is the latest branch with uh, the SegWit support on it. But uh, it just started two days ago. Um, We've been asked for a pull request. And um, so that's what we're working on. And um, I'm looking forward to, to delivering that. We'll, of course, be very happy to provide a BIP. Again, it's the same crowd. Uh, let me name them. Uh, the, uh, the group here, the person who did the work, the first author is Malte Moster. Uh, he was a, um, a master's student in Germany. He visited the group, and within a, a span of two months, we ended up implementing uh, the confidence idea as well as you know, the vaults and so forth. Malte is a fantastic, uh, fantastic researcher. He is currently a PhD student, and uh, he's starting his studies in a month or so at Princeton University. He's a wonderful guy. The second author on this is Itai Eyal. And uh, Itai is a postdoc at Cornell. He's a professor at the Technion in Israel in a year. And uh, he's a fantastic person as well. He's the the person who came up with the idea of Covenants and pushed the project through. Uh, I don't know what I do on these projects. Uh, you know. I, uh, <laughs> I generally have the, the ability to, to get these super bright people in the same room, I think. So it's the three of us, and we will be delighted to see this through. We'd love to, uh, as I said, work on the PR, uh, we'll, we would love to uh, write the BIP, and we'd love to see it in action.
3: So zooming out to the bigger picture, Goon, I just want to talk about um, Bitfinex again, which is what we sort of started this discussion on. There were a lot of people saying that they had the set, security setup that they had because they were trying to do regulatory compliance. And actually, the reason they set it up like that was because they were trying to comply with the government on something. I feel really encouraged hearing what you're talking about because it sounds like there are actual technological solutions that are better than any of the current regulatory schema that's meant to protect people or whatever. Are technological solutions to solving theft and preventing theft um, that could come about with with no need for regulatory interference. Is that sort of something that, that was on your mind too? Or how do you feel about the level of regulation on Bitcoin exchanges? Do you want to comment on, on that?
1: Um, sure. Uh, let's see. So I think what will happen, this is my big worry, is that if you have a lot of mom and pop style people who will come into Bitcoin They've heard Andreas talk, they get excited, and uh, they buy in. And then somebody comes up and says, hey, you're going to have to take a 36% haircut. Your money got stolen. Or worse, your money did not get stolen, and yet you have to take a 36% haircut because some other people on our exchange lost money. This, it's, you're going to end up having lawsuits. It's just a natural course of action for people. They go and sue when they hear something like this. And that is what brings in regulators. In my experience and from my vantage point, and I've spent a fair bit of time, I'm a co-director at this initiative at Cornell. We call it the initiative for cryptocurrencies and smart contracts. We do end up speaking to regulators. And in my experience, um, they've been incredibly cool in general. There are some exceptions. We can talk about bit license and so forth. But in general, um, I've spoken to some American regulators. I've spoken to some EU regulators. And by and large, they've stayed off of the space. They've allowed us to to innovate without, you know, uh, without really getting in the way too much. Um, But but this is a grace period. It's not like this is what they do for a living. What they do for a living is they come in. And um, uh, they've been incredibly nice. Uh, We've been granted this enormous, you know, length of time when, you know, we did our thing. And if to the extent that we can solve our own problems, I don't think that they will come in and regulate. Um, And conversely, if it becomes a thing that people are constantly losing money and there are lawsuits left and right and there are scam accusations and cyber theft accusations and so forth, flying left and right every time there's a theft you know, then they have no choice but to step in. Right? That's what their constituents actually demand of them. So so I think it's up to us. Um, I think it's all too easy to blame the state. It's all too easy to blame the regulators. But realistically, as I said, you know, they've been kind of okay. And and we should do our own part as technologists to improve the technology so that they don't have to come in.
3: There's so many things. That it's possible to do with just Bitcoin. You know, you you were saying that people are getting to the level of building these very complex operations just within Bitcoin. You don't need it to. You don't need Bitcoin to be Turing complete to be able to do a lot with it. And that's a theme that's come up a lot on our show lately, uh, especially with you know Ethereum and um, what people are trying to do with building that. Are there things that you would like to be able to do technologically? with cryptocurrency that are not possible on Bitcoin because of its Turing incompleteness or whatever? Or do you think that it's pretty much possible with creative solutions to kind of do anything you want on Bitcoin?
1: I'm a big fan of both Bitcoin and Ethereum, right? That's pretty clear. Um, In fact, I'm a big fan of anything that's technologically cool. That's what drove me to this area in the first place. And if I can do something like direct money flows programmatically, that gets me super excited. We didn't used to be able to do this until recently. I also like elegant solutions. And I think you'll find this in any kind of an engineer, right? We like solutions that are designed by smart people that have some sort of grace to how they function. So then the question is, does Bitcoin as it is today allow you to do something elegantly or is it a kludge to build it on top? And um, and vice versa. There are things in Ethereum that, you know, aren't easy to implement and they require additional infrastructure. So that's, I think the decisive point for me and it's a case-by-case call right there are things that i know how to build and layer on top of bitcoin op return was really cool and uh, i should mention that um, i was the first person to build um, what uh, is called VirtualNotary.org, virtual-notary.org this is a service that um, attests to online facts So, uh, you might have heard of Factom, which attests to, or ProofofExistence.com, it's uh, those services uh, attest to the existence of documents. Um, Virtual Notary uh, got started before any of those projects, and it can attest to anything, not just, uh, or any fact that can be checked online, not just documents. It came out of a political, uh, big political fighting um, in Turkey, uh, where the government ended up uh, prosecuting some people, saying that there was a website that had certain content that they deemed illegal, and there was an ownership relationship between the military and that domain name where this was hosted. But they never connected the dots to say they owned the website at the time it had this content. And so the defense was, well, we own the website, well, we own the domain name, but then the content got put in afterwards. So what they really needed to do was they needed somebody to attest to the fact that these two things happen at the same time. And uh, that's what was the impetus for me to build this thing. And uh, Virtual Notary has has been actually still in existence. It's issued 1.2 million attestations so far. Uh, A lot of people use it. And um, it can place facts on the Bitcoin blockchain but it used to be really hard until opreturn came in and uh, we would encode the state of our own private blockchain in some unspendable outputs and it was just it was just a mess and it wasn't a good solution so and when bitcoin actually did incorporate opreturn it was a huge step up it was suddenly like oh this is the right way to do this anybody can see to the extent that Bitcoin can evolve to adopt, to, to, um, to support new use cases, that's wonderful. To the extent that it gives us elegant, nice uh, mechanisms for, for tackling new problems, it's fantastic. And, um, and that, that would be, I think, the way I see this project evolving. To the extent that it becomes stagnant, to the extent that it becomes too conservative, that it, it, it doesn't admit new use cases then I start to worry and then that's the time when you see people you know vote with their feet and find some other blockchain which has you know more flexible features uh, or supports their use case better in a more elegant fashion
0: thanks for listening to this episode of let's talk bitcoin content was provided by andreas stephanie goon and adam music for this episode was provided by jared rubens and this episode was edited by adam b levine the magic word for today's show is notary. That's N O T A R Y. Notary. And uh, just to remind you, the Bitcoin Covenants paper, uh, released at the Bitcoin Workshop February 2016, and virtual notary.org were the relevant links. On next week's episode, episode 308, we'll talk with Zach Doty of the Bitcoin.com podcast about OneCoin. He joined Stephanie and I for essentially a joint episode, but, uh, but yeah, we had a good time with Zach. And I think that you'll enjoy the show. I learned a lot about OneCoin. It's a pretty crazy project. (laughs) All right, guys, talk to you next week.